Hello and welcome to Centrist Ads. My name is Adam Radford. Joining all the way from Sandbach is Kieran Seymour. <laughs> Hello there. Oh gosh, what an introduction. Sorry. There you go. The struggle is real. And uh, joining all the way from Salford is Alex Najad. Hello. Joining us from London is Mr. Steve Akehurst. Thanks for having me on. Very happy to be here. Whereabouts in London are you, Steve? I'm in southeast London at the moment, in Deptford, just very near, very near Greenwich. And yet, very happy to be here, despite being despite being neither a centrist nor a dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is tongue in cheek. I'm not a centrist or a dad. I wouldn't describe Alex as that. I don't want to say about Kieran because he is, he is a counsellor, so I don't want to pin down his political leanings necessarily. I am a dad, and I don't know if I'm a centrist. Probably in some ways, centrism is very much in the eye eye of the beholder. I've had enough internet hate mail over the years to suggest that I'm a centrist, so maybe I can. one of us. <laughs> Steve is a uh, political analyst. He's on to talk about the blue wall. Steve has written a couple of articles which have raised a lot of interest recently in the Times, I believe. Yeah, on the Red Box website. Yeah, where they they just slightly rebadged uh, something I'd written for for Substack uh, for the local elections. Yeah, so it, yeah, it got uh, quite a lot of interest. So I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about it today and teasing out some of that stuff. I guess let's just dive right in. Really, what is the blue wall, and what are your what are your main takeaways from your from your article? I tongue in cheek call it the blue wall, um, and what it is is a kind of an it's kind of the conservative equivalent of the red wall to some degree, right? Which is these are if you think of the red wall as places that were socially um, conservative but economically left-wing that have been moving away from the Labour Party over successive elections. My argument is that there is an equivalent of that for the Conservatives, which are socially liberal, economically centrist, maybe economically ambiguous, but certainly socially liberal places that they have have held for successive elections, in some cases going back quite a long way, in some cases more recent, but they've definitely held them fairly consistently. And where they are now starting to move away from the Conservatives, partly as a result of Brexit, partly a result of demographic changes, and my argument is that this is like what we what we should think of as a third electoral battleground heading into the next election. So you've got the Red Wall, you've got Scotland, obviously. You, ha- you do have some also some more traditional marginals. But you have this third battleground, in my opinion, which is these kind of socially liberal seats, largely on the outskirts of big cities, which have traditionally been held by the Conservatives, but which the Lib Dems and, and Labour are within striking distance. And we can talk about how this has emerged and what this means. But basically, my argument is that this kind of slightly more Remain-leaning electoral battleground is really important when we think about the next election and also political party strategies. And yeah, maybe maybe we'll get into some of that. When you say socially liberal, and I feel like, much like centrism is in the eyes of, of the beholder, I feel like socially liberals sort of got 100 different definitions depending on who you ask. Yeah. Are there sort of key social policy positions that attract these sorts of voters that are, that are threatening the Tories there? Are, there? are there any key issues or is it sort of more a general ethos? Well, yeah, I mean, there's lots of proxies for what we might think of as social liberalism um, in the way that there's lots of proxies for social conservatism. They will be things like they'll be slightly more liberal on immigration. They'll be slightly more liberal on cultural issues like LGBT issues, perhaps. They'll be mm-hmm. definitely be more pro-Remain on average. They'll be just kind of I use this word very advisedly, but like slightly more woke on some of these kind of more cultural cultural issues. Mm-hmm. In the academic literature, they'll show up as being, for example, much more anti-death penalty, much more anti-censorship, um, you know, like much more anti-strict parenting. Like there's lots of different ways you can define it, some of which are like academic and some of which are current. But those are broadly the kind of things that I would think of when we're talking about social liberalism, basically. The economic act is a whole different thing, but that's that's what we mean when we when I when I say mm-hmm. cultural liberalism, that's what, that's what I mean. And actually, like, remain is a very useful proxy for that kind of stuff, such as it is. And these 
these areas do tend to be more remain leaning for a bunch of reasons. Where are these areas then, Steve? So they tend to be in England. There are a couple in Wales. But where they are is basically places where the Conservatives have consistently underperformed. Places like Wickham, Truro and Falmouth, for example, Altrincham and Sale West. I think one of your presenters is from Salford, so not far away from there. Chingford and Wood Green as well on, on the outskirts of London. Um, Hitchin and Harpenden and North Hertfordshire. Like we're, we're broadly looking at places mostly in England, not quite in cities, but on the outskirts of cities. I'm going to say Wickham is, a, mm. is one as well as a classic one. I grew up in, in Hove, so not far from Hove is Worthing, East Worthing. That's another kind of classic one, which has been moving away from the Conservatives. Tim Loughton. Tim Loughton, exactly. And the reason they're changing is not just because they have more of these socially liberal voters, but also because the housing market is pushing more of these kind of younger voters more anti-Tory voters out of these big urban areas into these kind of suburban areas. And also, frankly, millennials, maybe like I don't know, are growing older, looking to settle down, buy a house somewhere more affordable than the big cities. And they're moving out into these places. Uh, as I said, and that's why they traditionally are being found on the outskirts of big urban areas. So take Worthing, for example, as I said, people are being pushed out of Brighton. Hove is also now too expensive, so they're settling to Worthing and Shoreham. That is having a big impact on the electoral dynamics of these seats, which were once kind of very predictably conservative. Is this going to be the story of the next election? I, I should probably um, not over-egg this, which is that there are, I would say, roughly 40 or 50 seats that I think are like up for grabs in this kind of blue wall area. Anyone with a calculator can work out that that is not going to, on its own, see Labour Party party win, win a majority, right? It might be enough to see the Conservatives lose their majority, but it's not the only battleground to think about here. So the red wall still matters. Scotland still matters. But my contention is just that there's this third battleground that is also worth thinking about. Westminster in particular is very, very focused on the red wall because it is definitely important. But that over-focus neglects um, some of these other areas. And I think that is important when we think about policy and how the Conservative Party in particular approaches what we might call cultural war issues. At the moment, they think mm. that like being, you know, war on woke, very socially conservative, they think this only costs them votes in Islington. But my argument is actually, I don't think it does. I think it costs them votes in these kind of battlegrounds as well. Now, maybe that won't be enough to cost them an election. The red wall is still really important. The local elections show you that, if nothing else. So let's not get too excited. We can also get into some of the details of how these could be, what circumstances in which these blue wall seats might be more important, might be less important. But I think they are definitely relevant. They are one of three battlegrounds. So yeah, let's let's not forget the other two, but also let's not forget that third one. What do you think this is stoking resentment in the in the traditional Shire seat constituencies where you've got this heavy emphasis on areas such as the Tees Valley, Freeport, and you know, all this investment that's going into the, the old market towns? Uh, in the in the so-called red wall seats where they've been given the towns fund deals do you know this is this is stoking resentment in those traditional shire areas when there's already a dissatisfaction with how brexit has been handled there's a couple of different theories on why this problem has emerged one is that is one essentially on economic lines that yeah that these places feel neglected by the conservative focus on the north i think there is a bit of that potentially like We'll get into this maybe, but the Conservatives lost seats in Kent, lost places, seats in Oxfordshire. Maybe in these kind of more shirey places, there is a bit of like feeling of they've not had much love um, from the government. But my argument, I think, is probably that it's less about economics and that it's mostly more about culture, particularly in these more, these cities that are less shy, these kind of places that are less like shires and more like kind of outer city areas on like the outskirts of cities. I think you're mostly looking at a couple of things. I think, firstly, the the population that live in places like Worthing, Ultraman, 
um, Hastings, Watford, these were already quite socially liberal demographics and they've turned against the Conservatives because of Brexit, because of a whole bunch of things that are them off perhaps to do with the housing market but in addition to that the composition of those places has changed because people are moving out of big cities and settling in there so if that makes sense if you've basically got a lot of these places are just they're just much more likely to have graduates people under 40 people that privately rent things like this right so i think that it's primarily those factors that are leading the the shift against the conservatives in these places i don't think i could be wrong i don't think it's most i don't think it's just or even mainly about like you know the north is getting all the money that may come into it in this parliament and that's definitely something worth keeping an eye on but i think my i would mostly say that it's largely cultural which has become countercultural to be conservative if you're under 40. Mm. I think that is what is playing through in a lot of these areas. They're, they're disproportionately young. As I say, they're disproportionately private renter. Um, and some of that is about economics and the housing market, but a lot of it is about culture. You all live in this country. You know that we've sat through the last four or five years of this kind of endless culture war. I think, you know, while that mm. gained them, the conservatives, lots of socially conservative votes, I think it has basically lost them a lot of votes among the under 40s and that is mostly what's playing out here but yeah i'll definitely be interested to see if like this other thread of you know the north gets all the money plays through in some of the kind of more comfortable areas like tunbridge wales or kent and those kind of places there's not just one party for dissatisfied voters to go to when people in these areas are are turned off by the conservatives does there seem to be a front runner for where they're flocking to? Okay, so this is a great question. Okay, and this is like one of the this is one of the things that will determine whether this shift or this dynamic actually costs the Conservative Party or not. It's about how fragmented these voters are among the three or the, the three left parties that we have in this country. Right? Sometimes politics is not that complicated. There's one right party. There's three left parties. Yeah. Fragmentation among those parties is a really big problem. At the last election, it was a bit of a, a mix. In some places they went Lib Dem, in some places they went Labour. And that's one of the reasons the Conservatives held on in a lot of these places, is that there was not really any tactical voting, no progressive alliance. So they mostly they mostly split among Labour and Lib Dem. Mm. In 2017, Labour managed to consolidate a few more of these anti-Conservative voters in some of these like liberally places. But some of the sort of reservations over Corbyn basically meant that there was still a fairly high Lib Dem vote. One of the interesting things about next time is the emergence of the Greens, which is like another place they could go. Yeah. Now, this is a problem because, or at least it's a problem if the Labour Party wants to care about these, these seats. If they don't want to care about these seats, that's absolutely, that's a different conversation, right? But if they do, then they definitely have a problem of how do they consolidate this anti-conservative vote. My argument is a tentative one, and it's a very unpopular one in the Labour Party, is that I don't really see how the Labour Party can care about these areas and not do some kind of deal with the Lib Dems or the Greens about standing. Now, that gets complicated. Would the Lib Dems accept it? Would the Greens accept it? You know, where do you draw the lines on where that deal is? Whatever. But I think your point is exactly right, which is that the trouble is that there is an anti-conservative vote in these places, but it fragments over. Um, it fragments across the, the different parties. And you saw in the Peterborough and Cambridgeshire by-election for the mayor, right? Now, the Conservatives lost that. Why? Because there were second preferences, because people could transfer from Lib Dem to Labour, and they did. And that's why the Conservatives want to change that electoral system. Yeah. When this kind of major anti-Conservative majority, let's loosely call it, in some of these places gets together or coordinates, it could be really lethal for, for the Conservative Party. But they largely don't, and that's why the Conservatives have held on to a lot of these places, because no matter what campaign groups tell you, people are not very good at voting tactics. 
I think we're so used to seeing in the media just everything about the collapse of the Red Wall and stuff. And I'm sure we will hear more of that, but we might hear more of this going forward. As And, you know, and, and I think the local elections are probably a prime example of that. You know, Hartlepool falls first. All of a sudden we're seeing, ah, it's the Red Wall collapsing again. But actually then you look at what happened in like Oxfordshire, for example, you go, hang on a minute, what's going on here? This is a bit bit unusual. But obviously that didn't get the coverage that uh, Hartlepool did because it wasn't a, a by-election for a start. And it came later. It seems obvious when you list the reasons and people moving out of London, getting further away from, you know, that, that commute about growing and getting bigger, London house prices too expensive. So yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Really am. One of the things, um, Steve, that we saw in Oxfordshire was that and this has come from somebody who was a, was, a, was a paper candidate, chaps, and got absolutely eviscerated. <laughs> there was an agreement in Oxfordshire between the Libs and the Greens, and where they stood a good chance of winning the seats, the other party would stand down. And this resulted in the leader of the council, with Conservative being unseated, for example. It didn't lead to massively sweeping changes because the Conservative vote is still, still fairly popular in that part of the world, part of the world where I'm from. But it is this sort of more socially liberal i guess kind of small business minded conservatism rather than this socially conservative sort of approach um, which seems to be pretty much in the, in the ballpark that you've pinned this down as really were there any other stories obviously you mentioned one of the mayorals spoken about oxfordshire but are there any sort of key poster children for for this blue wall shift that's taking place yeah so in the in the local elections there were there were a couple right we have to think of this as a funnel like not all of these areas are like close to being tipping towards labor right whitney is probably not going to go labor in the next election <laughs> but those are kind of at the beginning of their journey away from the conservatives i would say but some of the places are a bit closer so like we, we should just probably think of it as a sort as a spectrum um and instead of thinking that like Tom is going to like is going to go mm -hmm. labor next time even with that caveat yes there were some really interesting ones right so tunbridge wales for example the conservatives um lost control of um it's a, to a mixture of through a mixture of losses the lib dems and labor the conservatives lost in places like kent as well they lost seats in kent i mean if you look through if you look through the places where there were the biggest swings against the conservatives and towards labor you, you can even find um, you can find seats like you said in Oxfordshire and and even places like Surrey as well, right? And there are even a couple in Kent, uh, in Essex. Sorry. Okay, so like those are the kind of those were some interesting ones, and they're kind of titillating because everyone thinks of those places as like very posh. That that is part of the same phenomenon. But the ones that I was the most interested in are basically the wards that sit within some of these constituencies that I think are basically marginal now. Uh, so, for example, uh, like I said, Worthing, the, the Conservatives lost, they lost a lot of seats on both the county council there and on the actual council. In, uh, mm -hmm. in Truro and Falmouth, the Conservatives lost wards as well. Uh, they also lost one in Canterbury, as we've already seen that seat go Labour as well, right? I think in Trafford Council as well, the Conservatives lost a couple of seats and that's uh, wards wards within mm -hmm. this Altrincham, Altrincham mm -hmm. and Sale West constituency that Graham Brady has that's very marginal. So that was um, so that was very interesting. There were numerous kind of places, I would say, which which are more interesting within the local elections because they sit within these constituencies that are up for grabs next time. I feel like I've hit a bit of an epiphany um, all of a sudden thinking about what you're saying. But you, I may be wrong, so correct me if I am. But it feels like the cause of the blue wall i know where this is going possibly collapsing may well be <laughs> the centrist dads oh, 
Yeah, as I, as I understand it, both the Labour Lib Dems and the Greens have, have just piped your podcast into, you know, some of these areas, just slowly <laughs> chipped away at the conservative hegemony. If you're a conservative, you're a conservative strategist, right? I could be. Not, I'm not outing you as a conservative strategist here, I hope, Steve. How do you think they can possibly straddle this these two different, vastly different electoral areas where they're trying to appeal to the red wall and sort of more socially conservative areas whilst also shoring up their shy areas. Is that an impossible task that they've got ahead of them? Are they going to have to accept that they're going to lose some out? Or is it something that you think feasibly under Boris Johnson that the Conservatives will be able to pull off? Yeah, it's a good question. And look, their, their, their dilemma is in some ways, or their choices are the reverse of the Labour parties, right? So like both parties have this three basic options. They can either double down on the red wall, they can double down on the blue wall, or they can try and react. Probably the most sensible thing to do is try and find a balance between those two. And if they want to do that, there's a couple of, there's probably a couple of different things that they, they need to do, in my opinion. They are just finding their way around this at the moment, I think. For the most part, it's probably about just being slightly less antagonistic on culture war stuff. You know, they found a place where they're quite good. Again, I don't say this as a value judgment, whether I approve of it or not, but they're quite good at sending signals around cultural stuff. So they're, you know, immigration and stuff like that without kind of going out of their way to like trigger the libs. When they do that, I think it's quite because mm. it sends a signal to the kind of red wall voters, but it doesn't antagonize all of the kind of that conservative vote behind so much that they go and like they coalesce around Labour. You know, that's what happened in 2017, right? May pissed so many people off. There was so much negative partisanship. There was so much like desire to just not have the Tories win that the Remain vote coalesced around Labour. And obviously Corbyn had a good campaign and that played a part as well. But there was an element there where the Conservatives overplayed their hand, you know, with the citizens of nowhere stuff. If I was them, I would like just try and tone down some of this stuff a little bit. I thought that the handling of the Sewell, the race report stuff was really quite toxic, to be honest with you. And like it pissed people off beyond mm. it beyond like Islington or Hackney, right? There are lots of like people young people under 40 who would consider themselves to be broadly anti-racist or whatever and that stuff would not have sat well with them the way that they went out of their way to say like racism isn't a problem or whatever or the way they handled the communications around it if i was them i would do a bit less of that stuff there's different ways you can subtly send signals but i think they if they really care about these areas they need to tone that stuff down as number one and the other one is is housing as well, I would say. A lot of these places have high amounts of renters uh, and or a lot of the people that are in these blue wall areas have been sharpened by the housing market in one way or another. Um, so I think that as an issue is is very important. Also, things like climate is like a, a disproportionate concern for a lot of these kind of blue wall voters. So if they want to like staunch the bleeding, as it were, in these areas, those would be the three things that I would think about. It's an open question as to whether they really want to do that or not, because they could also make the calculation that the anti-Tory vote is going to split itself in these places. So, yeah, let's, 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 let's just kind of lean into the red wall stuff. Culture wall stuff gets really good cut through. Our newspapers like it. I can see, I can see the dilemma they have. If they want to chart a course in terms of battlegrounds through the middle, they have to kind of chart a course through the middle in terms of their tone. Of course, if they don't care about these places or they think they, they're worth it, it's collateral damage. That's a, that's a different issue. Were there voices from the Conservative Party voicing what you've said after the local elections saying look we've upset a lot of people with the approach it might have you know might have won a few seats elsewhere but it but it's cost us and it's specifically these sorts of socially conservative messages that you've been talking about you know is this something that the Tories are coming out with publicly yes I, there was a bit of it um now I can't remember if it was um Kieran or if it was Alex who mentioned like the um are we neglecting the south by investing in the north 
their comments were mostly along those lines. So I can't remember who it was, but I think it was the leader of Worthing Council and maybe someone in Kent as well who basically said, you know, mm. money's going into the north, don't forget yeah, It about. was Worthing, yeah. Yeah. So in effect, their analysis was economic. My analysis is cultural, but they definitely still were like very aware of this problem. Also, when I wrote my article originally, I was quite surprised by how many what we might call moderate conservatives tweeted it, shared it, engaged with me, messaged me. So this is like a this is an argument that people within the Conservative Party are aware of. They're just Hmm. given the unbelievable gains the Conservative Party has made in the Red Wall. It's just not a kind of argument that has had much traction in the last couple of years because they keep taking these places in the north. Right. So it's just very hard for like moderate conservatives to get traction about, oh, yes, but what about Worthing? What about Wickham? What, you know, <laughs> it's, it's very difficult for them to, to do that. And you can sort of see why, because Hartlepool was such a crushing victory for the Conservative Party. It suggests that there's maybe more of these kind of red wall places that the Conservatives can can win next time. So, it's it, yeah, so it's, it's, it's definitely a live argument um, within the Conservative Party. It occasionally creeps out into view. I mean, it occasionally creeps out into view from people who have things to lose in those areas, right? Sitting MPs, whether they get listened to by strategists in Conservative HQ, I think is, I'm not in a place to tell you whether that will happen or not. But I I do think it's like a live argument. Yeah, And I I mean, I do find your research absolutely fascinating, Steve. It's it's brilliant. Do you think that the sort of the media and the the sort of centre to right commentary, like Matthew Matthew Godwin and your Dan Hodges of the world, do you think that it's sort of a race on their part to, to prove the point against you that the likes of Doncaster Central and... Normanton and uh, Pontefract with Yvette Cooper uh, and Doncaster North with Ed Miliband and obviously the battle in spend by election coming up. Do you think they, they're eager to prove the point that no, your research is more of a, it doesn't really matter that East Worthing's majority gets down to about the, the 2000 and doesn't turn Labour. If more, if the Brexit party vote just keeps topping up the Tory vote, what do you say to the likes of Matthew Goodwin when they just they seemingly like they're debunking your research and just completely just not not acknowledging it in a way? There's there's definitely a lot of people who are kind of keen to push back on this and who have said you know the Red Wall is definitely much more important and Matthew Goodwin's one of them um, and actually his article in response to my blog was like a very thoughtful argument and actually to be fair. His argument was basically the Labour Party still has like places it can lose in the red wall and therefore it can't afford to take his eyes off a sole focus on the red wall. Right. Mm-hmm. And Hartlepool did show that 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 could be true. Right. So I'm not, you know, by, I'm very open to this argument. And I think if Hartlepool was a feather in the cap of that, of that rebuttal to some degree. Now, how typical Hartlepool is of these are, is hard to know. It was a by-election. It had a very high Brexit vote. Not all of the red wall areas that Labour held last time have very high Brexit votes. I still think if the Labour Party is doing well nationally, it holds on to a lot of these places. It went into Hartlepool doing very badly nationally. But maybe I don't want to kind of bore your listeners by getting into an argument about what the national swing does and all all the rest of it. But broadly, I think if Labour is on 37, 38% in the polls, it holds a lot of these red wall areas just because of the national swing alone. If we zoom out a bit, my argument against people like or rebuttal to Matthew's argument is to say the same thing as I said at the top here, which is yes, these red wall areas still matter. Okay, so I'm not I'm not arguing, or at least I don't think one should probably sensibly argue that the only place that matters in the next election is these like blue wall areas. Okay, there's clearly more ground the Conservatives could take in the north in leave areas they haven't done yet for a bunch of reasons. All I'm saying is there is this third battleground that both parties need to balance off 
against each other. I, you know, if I was the Labour Party and I was the Conservative Party, I would not be gambling all on red. Mm. I right? put it that way. Whereas people mm. like Matthew would say they should gamble all on red. And people like Dan Hodges would say that as well. And in part, that's because that would lead to a strategy that brings the Labour Party closer to their views uh, on like various social issues. And also because it's a plausible electoral strategy as well. So hopefully I haven't blathered too much there, but I'd say that's like broadly what my response to his argument would be is, yes, uh, you know, uh, you, you shouldn't you shouldn't assume the blue wall is the only thing that matters at the last election. I also didn't ever really make that argument. You know, it's just one of three battlegrounds. I just think at the moment it gets forgotten about. The way I see a route for Labour to turn the tide by the next election, I think they need to really, really hammer the electoral reform stuff and devolution. Go big, start talking about like federal states, start talking about real devolved powers for the north and, and different areas. But then I wonder if that might appeal to the devolved countries and to the north, do you think that would appeal to these blue wall seats or would that actually turn them off? If we say that like the Labour Party wants to find something that unites what we loosely call the red wall and what we loosely call the blue wall, obviously these terms are slightly abused and stretched in lots of ways, but let's just say we go with, with that as, as a shorthand. What are the issues that bring them together? So the issues that divide them are cultural mm. issues. The issues that bring them together are largely economic, yeah. and this is where it's important to be, uh, where it's important to be precise as well about where we're talking about. It's probably going to be very hard to bring like Tunbridge Wales along with like an argument for economic redistribution or whatever. But it's actually it's not going to be that difficult to get something like Worthing because a lot of these like people under forty and graduates are also they are socially liberal, but they also do tend to be left wing on economics in the same way that red wall voters tend to be socially conservative, but they do also tend to be left wing on economics. So I think the most fertile ground for bringing these groups together is largely economics. Now, that is very hard to do from opposition, and I'm not pretending that the task of the Labour Party is easier than it is. But I think that's the ground in which they'll be brought together. I think you're right. And I am also curious about what we might call this kind of constitutional stuff. Mm. So I think there is maybe interesting thing there about power and control over your life and like you know the way that democracy and the way that politics happens what we might kind of broadly call a kind of constitutional populism i do think it could be interesting and it could work in um the south uh, among like liberal voters who are like tend to be more pro-electoral reform anyway um but also maybe potentially among like the red wall voters who are less like into electoral reform but are more into arguments about like the way that Westminster has become like remote and stuff like that so things like citizens juries and all these kind of different interesting ways in which our politics could be reformed I I don't know I haven't seen any research on this but I do think that is also like an additionally interesting thing to think about it's not just economics but also basically what we might call constitutional reform which gets easily dismissed as like a liberal fad but I think if you frame it in the right way is interesting as a thing about like basically power and control over your life as long as it's not too anti-london but you know like as a kind of anti-westminster thing the way that politics yeah. gets done like there is still a lot of like disengagement and discontentment in in some of these red wall areas about like the way the country is governed now the conservatives have a monopoly on that at the moment i'm not saying as i said go out there and start arguing for proportional representation or something but i think there's like an interesting argument there in addition to the economics about power basically how much power people have over their lives how much power people have to influence their their local area yeah or, or like house of lords you know abolishing house of lords and that that could be quite popular all around i guess yeah I would imagine that like that would get some some support as well, right? Again, you just have to be think about how you couch this and 
it can't become like the AV campaign. Mm. There's lots of ditches that that kind of constitutional stuff can die in. Mm. But I think that there is like, again, I'm, I don't know for sure. I haven't seen any polling on it, but I, I, I wouldn't be too dismissive out of it out of hand as, as something that's only the obsession of liberal Remainers. I think you can make it work for both potentially. That would be my that would be my hunch. And in terms of not alienating the South and the Blue Wall, I think as long as you're not making that argument, it's like the South has too much power, London has too much power. I think as long as you're not doing too much of that, like mm. what I might call kind of Burnhamism, um, mm-hmm. then I think I think it, it could be an interesting area to explore. But I'm I'm guessing here, right? I haven't seen anything. Just before we we wrap up, so I can come back to this particular episode in at the time for the next general election and say, ah, <laughs> Steve, Steve Akers called these I out. I think for the next general election, we will be seeing Steve replacing John Snow or John Curtis. He's going to be on one of the, the live shows on BBC. That's my prediction. Get him a swingometer. Yes. And where are the, where are the sort of the, the most at risk of falling places in in the blue wall okay so yeah i mean well firstly i'll i can never i'll never claim to replace uh, john curtis or anyone like that um this is very much like amateur topology right this is something i did as a kind of late lockdown project um you know well, i'm glad that it stood it stood up so far it could well you know the could fall out of it we'll see <laughs> as i said it's important also to not over egg it like as i said the red wall still matters scotland is still massively important but in terms of where to look at the next election I'd say there's a there's a there's a mix of places. I personally think like somewhere like Wickham is a really interesting place to keep an eye on. It's got a four thousand majority, which is quite large. But in the last election in two thousand nineteen, it moved, moved towards the Labour Party. Right, so not just that the Conservative swing was weak; it's that there was actually a swing to the Labour Party. Hmm. That is unusual in the twenty nineteen. It suggests there's something quite a lot going on there. So I'd say Wickham. That's got Steve Baker in it. Uh, is a, who's a quite a right wing Conservative huh. MP? That'd be class. Yep. Um, I'd say the other one is um, Wimbledon, which is uh, Lib Dems are in second place in. That's a three-way marginal, uh, and that's one of the reasons the Conservatives might hold it. But if the Labour Party and the Lib Dems can kind of get their shit together somehow, hmm. or there's some kind of tactical voting or something like that, that, that could be a really interesting one. Um, another one where the Lib Dems are quite close is Escher and Walton, which is Dominic Raab's seat. Hmm. Oh my God, Steve! Don't get me too excited. Can you imagine a teary Dominic Rab crying into his pret sandwich on the way home? That would make my night. Not to, to pick on your chips too much here, but the risk here again is that like, the Labour Party does quite well nationally, and they chip away at the Lib Dem vote in that area. Hmm. But if the Lib Dems do well there, and there's any kind of tactical voting from the Labour Party next time, and there's any kind of shift away from the Conservatives nationally, I think that seat will go. Another one. Um, would be um, Chingford and Woodgreen, which is um, in Duncan Smith's seat in outer London. Mm. The Labour Party should have taken it last time, really. And I think that's another one uh, that could be really worth keeping an eye on. Where else should we go here? So I think I think Graham Brady's seat in Altrincham uh, and Sale West is, is really interesting mm. because it's that outside Manchester getting a lot of people moving out from like the big city. Uh, it's a very liberal place anyway. The, the local elections there were quite bad for the Conservatives. Mm. So I think that is a really interesting seat to keep an eye on as well. So that would probably, those would probably be my my ones to keep an eye on. They're not all, you know, there are, you can go and see my blog and you can see them ordered by majority. There are places with smaller majorities than somewhere like Wickham. But I just think the trends in those places are, mm. are really interesting uh, and could make for some kind of counterintuitive kind of losses in in the right national environment it's a bit like canterbury came out of nowhere right because but the the underlying shifts that were happening in 2017 brought 
meant that it, it fell. I think there's a couple of ones like that that are worth keeping an eye on. A caveat here is that if the Labour Party continues to be 10 points behind in the polls, none of this matters. Right? <laughs> yeah. So this is, this is all predicated on like a competitive politics, right? So the Labour Party claws back to maybe three or four points behind. In that scenario, some of these places become very important. If the Tories are 14 points, 10 points up, like, forget it. None of this matters. What I'm talking about here is that, like, if we get an election scenario that's, like, roughly analogous to 2017, um, or even how it was three or four months ago, where it's, like, three or four points conservative uh, conservative lead, in that kind of national tight environment, if these trends continue, that's where some of these places do become very important. But, yeah. Let's, oh. let's cool our jets a little bit. If the, if the Tories are 15 points up in a couple of years, everyone's fucked. Forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> On that high note of uh, everyone's if the, if the Tories are that far, <laughs> we'll have to wrap it there, really. Really enjoyed having you on, and I'm sure that a lot of people listening have really piqued their interest in this. Where can people find more of your stuff, stuff and subscribe to more of your research and your writing? You can follow me on Twitter. It's at Steve Akerst, um, A-K-E-H-U-R-S-T. And I have started a Substack with my friend Tom. It's called Strong Message Here. So strongmessagehere.substack.com. And that is largely a Substack about political communications, kind of like campaigning communications. Like I work in the NGO world doing issue campaigning. So most of the stuff I write for that will be basically about progressive communications on climate or you know, other issues, but I do occasionally throw in, and I will occasionally throw in a bit more like amateur electoral analysis um, such as this. So yeah, please do um, subscribe to that if you're interested in that range of things. That's uh, yeah, strong message here. Dot Substack. That's great, Stephen. There's also a link to your to your Redbox article as well um, in in the show notes as well. But thank you, honestly, so much for coming on. Um, it's really interesting to talk to somebody who who really knows this, you know, inside and out. So it's been really interesting. So thank you, and uh, yeah, be good to be good to talk to you again when we see perhaps some of these potentials bear fruit really yeah thanks a lot steve yeah brilliant i was really hoping that i was really hoping that oxbridge and south ryslip might have been in your top five but unfortunately not christmas is a long way away kieran maybe maybe in 20 years time or something god well if boris johnson's still mp in 20 years time there oh dear <laughs> well i mean like in in theory sorry um, um, we re- we've ended here so i can't go into this more can i Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> go for it. Yeah. In theory, it's it's one of those ones that's um, that's at risk. But yeah, probably probably it's going to be a bit of a stretch to see a sitting a sitting prime minister lose his seat. But you know, l- l- I tell you what, let's just finish it. It's <laughs> one of those at risk. I'll take that. Whatever straws need to be clutched at this point. Um, I think the kids call, call it hope. Maybe we should uh, we should leave it there. Thanks very much, Stephen. Much appreciate yeah. it. Speak to you soon. Thanks, Steve. Thanks a lot. Okay, before we move on and talk about the elections now that the dust has settled as we're recording on the 17th of May, um, what have you what have you been up to for the past couple of weeks, Kieran? I had a nice proud centrist dad kind of moment with with, with Jensen. Went to a supermarket. He said he misses Blair. <laughs> yeah. You know, they have those like salad bar things, which mm-hmm. contains very little salad and lots of pasta and hummus and yeah, yeah. middle class products i gave him the option of uh, which bit do you want to put in like bacon bits or you can put in this and held up a falafel and he chose the falafel um so that, that, that was a proud <laughs> not, uh, not to 
not to completely take the shine off that proud dad moment though but did you did you as you were offering up these two options to him say do you want this bacon bits yeah or do you want this (laughs) it's exciting ball of wonder in my head i was completely neutral and fair and impartial i was was bbc so you're impartial in that probably more middle class than, than i currently am some sometimes he has avocado uh and cream cheese on toast for breakfast <laughs> which i've never had for breakfast can you so, can you share the age of your child two and a half for context two and a half <laughs> two and a half two and a half do you guys remember this this children's book called avocado baby <laughs> no. avocado do you baby. remember this avocado baby which which is which is possibly the most middle class children's book now that I'm old enough to realise it. Imagine Popeye oh my but God. with a baby and avocados instead of spinach. It's a baby <laughs> that becomes super strong and can do anything. This was like one of the most popular books in my primary school. Shock horror uh, listeners. My family during during my lifetime has transitioned into a middle class family, and this I herald is a key part of that transition process. <laughs> Avocado Baby. That wouldn't be a serious book in 2021, would it? That would be a jokey book that the parents read that the kids have no idea what's going on in. Alex, <laughs> not feeding your your child avocado and foie gras <laughs> and gravelax on sourdough what have you been up to i had a nice long weekend and went to the zoo saw very few animals who i can only assume that they were asleep but it was nice just to get out in the open drank a lot of martini not at the zoo that was afterwards and just just the idea of you and your missus walking around the zoo martinis in hand could have made up for the lack of animals we did see the elephants and we did see giraffes and and... i I didn't mean you as exhibits (laughs) i meant you walking around getting smashed off martinis yeah so um and also i've got my covid my first covid jab this this wednesday which is very exciting oh really yeah yeah. What flavour are you That's having? Cool. <laughs> AstraZeneca. I am getting the Pfizer vaccine. Oh, oh, Pfizer. So yeah, I mean, goodness. I mean, that's that's what I've been up to. I mean, that's enough for anyone, I would have thought. Zoo martinis and uh, having a life-saving vaccine lined up is, is not too shabby, really. Come on. Uh, temperatures here have grazed 36 degrees. The pool has reached swimming temperature i'd stop whilst you're ahead adam I mean, we've just had we've had rain constantly it's <laughs> yeah. just been abysmal it's cold it's not cold but it's cool it's yeah was it like two weeks ago we had yeah, snow or yeah, something yeah. stupid like that snow. yes just want to give a quick shout out to people who've been listening around the world we have had our first listener in northern ireland we didn't have a listener in northern ireland or at least not somebody who shares their uh, location data with uh, with a podcast provider and also this is going to make you very uh, happy kieran as a as a welshman or bit of plastic one uh, we had our first listener in wales oh yeah we've had listens in in long beach we have more listens in el segundo dallas roehampton lee barcelona Leeds, Wallington, Sheffield, Boyton, Pescador. Never heard of it. Brilliant. Somewhere in Italy that I can't pronounce. Carver de Tyreni. Uh, Southampton, Ruthin. Hello. Epsom, South Norwood. I'm just skipping through. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like the Blue Wall Seas. <laughs> <laughs> Auckland, Burgess Hill, Harrow, Ilfracombe, Montreal. 
Glenrose in Scotland, Largo, Surbiton, Tampa. Had a few, had a few more Americans, guys. This is very exciting. I'm very sorry, Americans, because this next half of the podcast is going to not mention America. Yeah, Alex, I'll let you introduce what the next half is about. I mean, gosh, where to begin? I mean, the dust has finally settled over the long and protracted weekend of the 2021 local election results. We, of course, saw. Hartlepool fall to the Conservatives with a huge majority. I mean, what is it? Is it nearly is it seven thousand majority to the Tories now? The Labour vote completely collapsed. Labour obviously chose a poor candidate in Paul Williams, really, and the Conservatives chose arguably an even worse candidate in Jill Mortimer. <laughs> uh, but she won with a, a six thousand nine hundred and forty majority. And I say she was a, a bad candidate in that, that, that she was hidden from the media. So that that's that's. Her- her, um, sorry to interrupt, Alex, but I have to just when you saying that she was bad, did anyone see her in one of her interviews after she yes, got elected? Yes, on Have I Got News for You, I saw the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was just like, what are you going to do? Oh, I've got big plans. What are your plans? Oh, there's a, a long list. What, what exactly is on that list? Oh, it's just a, a, a long list of plans. Terrible, terrible. There was an independent, Sam Lee that came third. She's a local businesswoman, she's an entrepreneur, set up her own business. I don't know anything about her position, right? I don't know anything about her politics. She pulled in 9.7% of the vote. That's pretty f***ing good. She must have been tearing her hair out to have a Conservative candidate parachuted in who can't even say what she's going to do and that she wins. We saw like generally a repeat of the 2019 general election where Labour fell further backwards in the red wall and the seats that the Conservatives had done very well in the in the general election. Really, overall, a disappointing night for Labour on so many fronts because it was just really just they were their attack was completely bludgeoned in the county council elections that were last contested in 2017. They were up. The Conservatives majorities went up in these councils. Councils that they were, Labour predicted to do well in Nottingham, Derbyshire didn't come to fruition. Labour fallen even further back in these county councils. Traditionally shy of Tories anyway, but it's still depressing for Labour. In Scotland, the SNP did did well across the constituency vote, and in the re- and we did see some tactical voting which played out on the regional list. And the, the Conservatives stayed the same. The SNP, though, didn't get a majority, have a pro-independence majority with the with the Scottish Greens, mm. and Labour fell further backwards, even with the momentum of Anasawa, the alleged momentum of Anasawa, in Wales, which was arguably Labour's best hope. Mark Drayford, uh, under his leadership, the Welsh Labour Party increased its majorities and held on in, in several seats, which conversely went Conservative in the 2019 general election, such as Wrexham, the Vale of Glamorgan and, and those places. With the with the mayoral results as well, I mean, it's a bit of a mixed picture in terms of what happened in London. Great across the board in Greater Manchester, in Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, yeah. uh, as well as the West of England. Labour gained those two bad authorities. Sean Bailey did pretty well, didn't he? Exactly. So in London, Sadiq Khan fell backwards and Sean Bailey's mm. vote was up. Whether that's whether that's due to more Londoners moving out, perhaps, a reduced a significantly reduced turnout. More London seven hundred thousand Londoners have moved out during the pandemic over the course of the pandemic. Wow. So that could have had an effect, you could say. But if you look at the sort of the Enfield results, particularly Enfield Southgate, which is a Labour seat at the moment, the Conservatives would gain that result, would gain that constituency if it was played out in a general election. So really it's a, hmm. it's a very mixed bag. And I know we've just had a, a, a fascinating uh, fascinating interview 
with Steve Akers, obviously a fascinating discussion. There were some like pockets of results where Labour did very well. I mean, if you look at the Greater Manchester uh, councils, there was a bounce. There was a burn and bounce, and clearly they did do well. Mm-hmm. But across the board, I mean, really, I suppose we'll explore in more depth. But Keir Starmer, his leadership is a bit, Starmer slump. Starmer slump. I mean, whatever you want to call it, his leadership is damaged by the results, and it damaged even more by that by his general reaction. These results told us a lot, but they told us you know things that we already knew, and, and it, it is a, a poor barometer, really. Council election results, how things are going to play out in a general election. Yeah. But it's they are a very poor set of results for Labour and they really I mean it's it's a difficult conversation as to what they need to do. I mean, we always have these conversations, which I'm sure we'll explore and I'm gonna stop talking in a sec. But we always have these conversations after an election where we always discuss like what there's always a discussion, Labour needs to do this. And it gets mm-hmm. to the point where it's like what what else can they do? I mean it's difficult to say whether or not it was a terrible night for Labour. It clearly wasn't good, right? But I don't think it was a an absolute disaster. Hartlepool was a disaster. The whole election night was not a disaster. Mm. In terms of vote share at the locals, so this isn't Scotland, this isn't Wales, uh, Labour under Starmer got 29%. That's not great, but looking back through the years it's also not especially poor for context so starmer got 29 for co- for context that is higher than two of corbyn's locals but lower than two of corbyn's locals it is equal to and higher than uh, one two three of Miliband's, but significantly lower than three of Miliband's locals and Miliband obviously made a lot of gains at local elections so in terms of vote share it wasn't a disaster it wasn't a disaster but clearly they, the votes didn't happen in the areas where they needed to happen because Labour lost council seats and lost councils obviously gaining an assembly member in Wales I love Mark Drakeford he's like a gentle old tortoise droopy Drakeford he's he's cool isn't he but the thing is, he's not cool. This is the great yeah. thing. It's like in this in this age of bombastic merchants, you've got somebody who's who's quietly spoken, sensible, just gets on with being a politician, doesn't care about clinging to power. I love him even more because he also trained as a teacher, then a social worker. Did he? Yeah, really, really rates it. I mean, one of the things he said is that the uh, the, the handling of the the vaccine rollout in in Wales seems to have helped him, I think yeah. he said, and sort of how, how the lockdowns. Generally in Wales, he was considered to have done a good job. At times it was frustrating for people because he was a bit more conservative and strict with easing of lockdown and um, restrictions. But overall, that actually paid off. And mm. people in the end actually were, were quite happy with, with how Wales did in comparison to what was happening in England. Mm-hmm. So that definitely paid off for him in, in, in the results. And he's also not staying. He's said that he's leaving in this parliament, I believe. So, you know, he's just a guy trying to do his best for the country. And I think that just came across quite well with him. Also, they're doing some quite interesting stuff policy-wise. So this week, they've they've said they're going to trial the first ever uh, universal income. Amazing. Surely, if, if, if Drakeford's doing that, then that's got to be a policy that has, has been discussed or fought through with the central labour office machine in in westminster why the hell is starmer not doing that why is that not a policy where labor are coming out unanimously now and saying which i fundamentally think it should be is it's 
you, the, the pandemic has shown us the future of work with the rise in AI over the next 10 to, 10 to 20 years, uh, people, millions of people's jobs will be redundant. You will need a universal income. Um, it's going to have to happen at some point in the next in the next generation's lifetime, I would expect. That's the good ending, isn't it? Yeah. But it looks like we're, we're choosing the bad ending. Well, Pulling it back on the elections. Yeah, sorry, I got, I got distracted. Then. I, I would love to talk about universal basic income another time. But, but uh, I, I think, think you're right. Pull it back to the, the election. Like, that's the problem with Starmer. Where's the policy? Tell me a Labour policy. Tell me a Starmer policy. I don't know any. I can't think of one. Why has he not come out and said, bam, universal income will be part of our manifesto it's not ridiculous it's not gonna be unpopular because there's not been a party conference and policies haven't been proposed voted on and approved this comes back to what i said what's the point in the labor party then if we have to wait for a, a party conference to decide things which given how splintered labor is anyway might not even get through starmer was elected on a slate rightly or wrongly whether you were wherever your position of the political spectrum ideologically he was elected on a, a, a policy platform under his leadership election mm. and why didn't he just carry them in the local elections these were his policies yeah. if he was ele- if they were good enough for the labor party members why did he just drop them i know he says that i know there is the argument i could throw back at you kieran i could argue i could argue with you there and just say the counterpoint to be the devil's advocate is he's needed time to fix the labor party he's, he would be charged with playing politics during a pandemic when he should be rallying behind yeah. the flag and the government, appreciate that. And you know, flag country and a queen and country and all that. He's got his flags. He's had his flags. <laughs> Labour doesn't have any policies. That's a problem. And you kind of know what the, the Tories' policies are because they're all like bite size. The bite size policies for leveling up, build back better. Yeah, and the thing is, like those snippets there, they don't mean anything. Like when you break down what they're actually doing, are they doing those things? No. Are they building? Are they building forty hospitals? They sound good, don't they? Exactly. They sound good. Build exactly. back better. Believe in Britain. We'll build forty hospitals. We'll recruit twenty thousand police officers, even, even though, though we, we cut them. <laughs> they stick. Jabs and arms. Yeah. That's a good one. Jabs and arms is one as well. Boris Johnson's getting a lot of a lot of credit for how the vaccine, how well the vaccine rollout is going, and it's a lot of things are being twisted in terms of well, if we hadn't left the European Union, we wouldn't have been able to do this. If we haven't left the European Union, we wouldn't have been able to, to stop the European Super League, which don't even get me started on that. But there, there seems to be this sort of shift in tone between what Labour is saying and what the Conservatives are saying. And the Conservatives are talking to their, to their base and reaching out a broadly aspirational tone, building back better, you know, free ports, jobs, 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 jobs get Brexit done, believe in Britain, caveat, I think it's nonsense. I think it's devoid of, of, of much substance and I, and I certainly think it's a dangerous government. But in terms of like sounding aspirational, I think they've got a very strong brand and a very strong message that they've managed to carve out. And amongst mm. amongst red wall voters, there was a, I mean, t- I take all polls with a pinch of salt, especially YouGov polls, but there was a poll that came out today I mean, in the red wall, the population's got a more favourable view of the Tories than they have of Labour, which is extremely mm. worrying, especially thinking about what Steve just said in terms of yeah. whilst the blue wall is, is a battleground, the red wall is a massive battleground and there's no way Labour can do it without it. Pretty certain the election is going to be in 23. There's, there's still time to fix this. So it's two years and there's going to be a lot of bumpy 
use another Johnson uh, soundbite. You know, there's going to be some bumps in the road ahead for the Conservative Party. It's, you know, he's he's had the vaccine bounce that'll pass. Then there's the there's going to be rising unemployment when furlough ends. Whenever that does end, we have to pay for the pandemic. Still, that's going to kick in. Scotland is obviously going to be massive. In, and that's another thing we need to talk about actually in the local elections so absolutely by no means is that's it for the general election but i feel like this has been a massive kick up the backside really for starmer um, and and labor generally to be honest and kind of moving on to post results the way the whole angela rayner situation was handled was was quite frankly a pr disaster shockingly done there's no one there who's your kind of deft hand at the the the, the political game of Westminster, and um, no one with that experience to ensure that they're um, not making these mistakes. You know, you need a Malcolm Tucker in that room. You need a Malcolm Tucker in the room saying, "Do not, don't you effing dare." sack anyone or don't say sack you know which is where it went wrong they should have dealt with it internally and said look we're moving your job we're not sacking you kieran, kieran seymour does not condone workplace bullying i do yeah no yeah no um perhaps uh perhaps it would be easy if we if we sort of break it down into regions nations and sort of and, and busk it from there maybe we start off with it with the easiest one london not much really changed Khan stayed, reduced majority, not unexpected for incumbents to have a reduced majority in, uh, in terms of votes. The Labour group in the Assembly, made they took a sh** with the trousers on yesterday when they refused uh, an all-party agreement to share the chairs of committees proportionally. So now Labour won't be chairing any committees. Really? Yeah. So Labour Labour offered the most the most chairs because they got the most seats. The Labour Party, the Tories, the Libs, the Greens would all chair committees. The number decided upon the proportionality of votes, and Labour wouldn't agree to it. So now Labour chairs nothing. It's not a coalition that's being missold online by some Labour MPs. It doesn't have much power at all. It scrutinises and it complains if it doesn't like things these committees mm. but not great is it but nothing no. really seemed to change alex is there much really else on london there apart from happy to see the back of some of the further right wing people from from the london assembly the small stories there is the areas that sean bailey gained mm. and that's concern for labor in london and as a general point because if you look at enfield the conservatives gain there that means that there could well be some sort of conservative revival in the capital and there's there's local elections next year which will where every council seat in london will be up for grabs so that points to where the the current state of play is going into, into 2023 for example so that's going to be that's going to be mm. interesting because the big story then if if, if starmer's losing support there in in london then kind of game over yeah yeah that's where labor's core vote is now really yeah i mean another place where labor's core vote is and i think perhaps the, the second least to, to talk about really in terms of complexity is wales things are probably going to carry on labor gained a seat shall we uh, shall we go head first then into into one of the more complex i'm going to say the s word going north of hadrian's wall and you know further north than that 
even though not very much changed hands. Mm. Alex, how about you, you kick us off? It's becoming more about where this constitutional battle lies now, the, the, the test for the Conservative government, because really with Scotland, it, it, was a, it, was a, it was a complex election where not a lot changed hands in terms mm. of seats. Really now it's about where how Johnson can appease the SNP and how it how it plays this this referendum card now because that's, that's what it's pointing towards and in fairness there is a, a pro indie referendum majority in in yep. in Holyrood so Johnson isn't going to give a referendum unless he thinks he's going to win and polls consistently show that he's going to win mm. now so what happens how does this play out because if Scotland were to to vote to leave the United Kingdom Johnson would have to fall on his sword He'd have to resign. Yeah. And he isn't going to do that. He isn't going to grant this referendum until he knows he's going to win. So it's a very, very tricky battle now what's going to happen with Scotland. I thought it was interesting that Alba fell flat on its ass. It's Isn't it amazing seeing people who were so cocksure falling so short? One thing I just wanted to touch on, actually, was the um, Lib Dems had a, did have a good night with... Uh, local in a local election, so they, they did make a, a net gain of, of seats. Yeah. They flipped St Albans Council as well, uh, which they hold at parliamentary level. And the Green Party had a really good mm. night as well. They fought a campaign in their individual wards where they where they gained seats. Traditionally, on the old Lib Dem battleground, are f- tackling local issues. And they, they did that very effectively. And they made gains in Bristol. And they could quite easily be, in four years, gain the Bristol mayor, Bristol city mayor. The, the, the key thing within, I think, within Bristol to, to take note of, apart from the fact the Greens came second in first preference votes, is that they got the most second preference votes <laughs> rather than Labour. I went way back to 2005 to see the, the Green Party of England and Wales. Scottish Greens are a different party. Green Party of England and Wales net gain and loss of councillors at UK elections. Since 2005, they have made net gains every year except for two. This year it was 88. See, last year there wasn't an election. 2019 plus 194, 2018 plus eight, 2017 plus one. But it wasn't a loss. I won't rattle off the numbers, but that's impressive. There's something about how they get a foothold like they did in Solihull you know, over a decade ago, and they're serious contenders in Solihull now. It's almost like there's this giant issue facing the whole world that slowly is dawning on people, isn't a lie or just going to go away and is a serious problem. Long may it continue, and it's just a shame that it's only at a local level that at the moment they're having those gains because we have a terrible, terrible system for voting for the, you know, Westminster Parliament where they don't get the representation they should be and don't get to have the influence on policy they should be. But with that, that influence can come from somewhere. We mentioned it in a previous podcast, actually. UKIP didn't have a big Mm. parliamentary representation. But when they spooked the Conservatives, they committed to a referendum. It didn't need to happen, a a European referendum. And uh, they spooked the Labour Party as well because there was that control on immigration mugs under Ed Miliband's leadership. So the Greens can influence. And I think if... The Greens continue to make gains and continue to be competitive at parliamentary level and may get the odd seat here and there. Then the other part, then the main parties will have to set up because that's when people, yeah. that's when the influence will come that they'll need to do more about climate change and commit to more 
reasonable policies at a more accelerated rate, perhaps. That's true. That's a good point. That is a very, very good point. And also, I think we've got to look at like the power of the metro mayors as well, though I don't think Labour as a party can rely too heavily on that. I think they've become excellent spokespeople. You look at Andy Street, he's well-known in the West Midlands. You look at Andy Burnham, he romped mm. home. Yep. Andy Burnham, future leader of the Labour Party. Yeah, I think perhaps. I think he. I think he, he's clearly got a, a pull to him, and I think he's got more of a, an authentic side. But I think there's... There's one point I wanted just to raise on the alliance that we've discussed mm. throughout the podcast is the progressive alliance. Mm. It would take some real guts by Keir Starmer or any Labour leader to admit that they can't, one, win a general election anymore, and two, you could argue that Labour can't get, now get its acting gear because it can just punch itself in the face constantly. They'll get like, I don't know, 30, 30% of the polls, for example, mm. and not stand in, seat, stand in certain seats. And that'll somehow bail them out because they want to have a conversation with themselves, a, a self-indulgent conversation. That's all wings of the party as well. It's not just, you can't just pin this all on Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. You can't just pin this on John McDonald and co. There has to be responsibility on this leadership that's just confusing. He just had a very bizarre reaction to, to the election results. It was just mm. weird. So I think it's a big it's a big year for Keir Starmer. The only bonus is that the, the Labour rule book dictates that if the leader does not want to stand down, the leader does not have to stand down. Mm. It's not like the Conservative Party. No Labour leader needs to stand down if they don't want to. He'd have to go of his own will. I don't think Ed Davey is a Prime Minister in waiting. But it's interesting comparing the response from Ed Davey to the election results and the response from... Keir Starmer to the election results because you you're right I think Starmer did have a have a weird reaction to the election results right the Liberal Democrats gained one council like you said St Albans and they gained eight councillors to bring it up to 588 so it's, it's not great Ed Davey was in the was reacting to this like it was this huge election victory and he was praising the people who were pounding the pavements and knocking on doors and ringing people up and really praising his activists and praising the candidates that won and candidates that didn't win that put up a good fight and you listen to him and you're like yeah hell, the Lib Dems must have had a great night and then you look at the results and you're like oh you're over egging it a little bit compare that to Keir Starmer where like you said Andy Burnham romped home he won in every single ward in man in greater manchester tory wasn't even close i was a very poor candidate as well very poor populist right-wing candidate as well gaining wales stopping the bleeding in scotland you know under the, in at the last election labor lost 17 they lost two election uh, to this election gaining mayors holding london Keir Starmer had a lot to to shout about and people would have said well yeah what about hartlepool and what about losing hundreds of councillors by fumbling around to reshuffle his front bench straight away and then having a weird we had a weird day where nothing really happened why would you announce it sunday on sunday evening as well who's advising that i know bizarre really weird uh and then it, and then nothing really happened except for angela rainey got more jobs she's got more jobs than the rest of the shadow cabinet put together okay so she 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 was in a position that was that was responsible for the campaign but let's not kid ourselves it wasn't squarely on angela angela rayner's shoulders it wasn't angela rayner's decision in the aftermath of the election to instead of do what some people did in the some leaders did in the election and praise their volunteers and praise their candidates and say how awful it is that they're that some council, a lot of councillors lost their seats. Mm. He didn't do that. 
It's not down to Rayner. That's that's Keir Starmer's decision to not say these things. And I thought that was particularly poor. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, it, it wasn't a massive shock that the Anasawa, with not very much of a run-in, didn't turn things around in Wales, in Scotland. But there wasn't anything on him from Starmer, really. No. And you think, fucking hell, mate! Like he's leading a national branch of the Labour Party. Mm. You've got to, yeah. you've got to give credit where it's due. He, he, he tried his absolute best, and it wasn't a disaster. <laughs> When you spin it as a bad night for yourselves, it's, it's going to be much harder. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the most promising things were, were where there were agreements, like I've already mentioned about um, in, in Oxfordshire, and where there were agreements around the country, it worked. People turfed out Tory councillors. Yeah. The main roadblock to a progressive alliance, it's not the Greens and it's not the Lib Dems. No. It's Labour. I think Alex is absolutely on the money in terms of it's it's admitting that you can't do it as a yeah. leader. It's also saying you're willing to to get into bed with the Lib Dems, which some people, a lot of members, <laughs> resent massively. A lot of members will stay in the party, Labour having proposed and voted on a war in Iraq and voted against consistently investigating build-up, but they can't stand the Lib Dems for getting into bed with the oh, Tories yeah. 10 years yeah. ago. Riddle me that. So just to finish now, it's it's just so in hock to historical trade unionism, folky historical aspects of society, which were obviously noble at the time, like the Jarrow March and general strikes of the past in the 20s. But it's just, it, if it wants to go down this course of just being so partisan and just so red in the tooth, then it will never, it'll never change. Tell it in all of our voices. We just sound really forlorn. And really <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, it's depressing. It's depressing, isn't it? Really, it's, it's very depressing. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. It is. I feel a bit like Eeyore. Anyway, it is goodbye from the People's Republic of Salford. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. <laughs> and it's goodbye from the leafy green suburbs in Sandbach. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me in Spain. Bye-bye.